the Jodcast with Rachel taking hold of the helm, Ian Morrison, Gabriella Perez, Adam Avison, Tana Joseph, Shruti Badoli, and Emma Alexander. The Jodcast, June 2018 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Rachel Ainsworth a postdoc here at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics and a brand new presenter. And joining me in the studio are seasoned professionals, Adam and Tana. Hi. Hello. In the show this time, Emma Alexander interviews Danielle Michili about fast radio bursts, and Ian Morrison and Gabby Perez take a look at what's happening in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Trudy Badole with this month's news. In the news this month, Dark galaxies discovered by astronomers, a new theory about Pluto's formation, and the launch of Mir-Lith telescope in South Africa. First up in the news, astronomers from ETH Zurich have recently detected six dark galaxies. Dark galaxies are those galaxies that are devoid of stars, thus making them difficult to detect as they do not emit light. In spite of substantial efforts, the theory of galaxy formation and evolution is not entirely clear to astronomers. Some theoretical models suggest the existence of an epoch in the early phase of galaxy formation when galaxies contained substantial amount of gas but were still inefficient at star formation. Detecting these dark galaxies has been a challenge, but there are still methods to do so. One way to observe dark galaxies is to illuminate them in presence of an external source of light, such as a background quasar. This is a way that ETH Zurich astronomers Dr. Marino and Professor Sebastiano Cantalupo have employed. Quasars are bright, compact objects that are believed to be powered by supermassive black holes. The intense UV light emitted by quasars induces fluorescent emission in hydrogen atoms known as the Lyman Alpha Line. This causes the hydrogen in any dark galaxies in the vicinity of the quasar to give off visible fluorescent light, thus making the otherwise hidden galaxies visible. In a news release, the Nuerster reported that although such fluorescent illumination has been used before in searches for dark galaxies, Marino and the team of astronomers now looked at the neighborhood of quasars at greater distances than has been possible in earlier observations. This was done with the help of the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer instrument, also known as MUSE, attached to the European Space Observatory's Very Large Telescope. As per the news release, the team acquired the full spectral information for each of the dark galaxy candidates. Deep observations 10 hours for each of the six quasar fields they studied, enabled Marino and her colleagues to efficiently tell dark galaxy candidates apart from other sources. From initially 200 Lyman alpha emitters, half a dozen regions remained that are unlikely to be normal star-forming stellar populations, making them robust candidates for dark galaxies. The study was recently published in the Astrophysical Journal. In another news, in a recent study published in the journal ICARIS, astronomers at the Southwest Research Institute have developed a new theory about Pluto's formation. The scientists came up with the model known as the Giant Comet Cosmochemical Model of Pluto Formation based on data from NASA's New Horizons and ESA's Rosetta mission. 
In a press release by the Institute, Dr. Christopher Klein of the Institute's Space Science and Engineering Division said, We found an intriguing consistency between the estimated amount of nitrogen inside the glacier and the amount that would be expected if Pluto was formed by the agglomeration of roughly a billion comets or other Cupier belt objects similar in chemical composition to 67P, the comet explored by Rosetta. Our research suggests that Pluto's initial chemical makeup, inherited from cometary building blocks, was chemically modified by liquid water, perhaps even in a subsurface ocean. This research builds upon the fantastic successes of the New Horizons and Rosetta missions to expand our understanding of the origin and evolution of Pluto. Using chemistry as a detective's tool, we are able to trace certain features we see on Pluto today to formation processes from long ago. This leads to a new appreciation of the richness of Pluto's life story, which we are only starting to grasp. And finally, the 65-centimeter Mir Lith telescope was recently inaugurated at the Sutherland Observatory in South Africa. Mir Lith, which is Dutch for more light, is equipped with a 100-megapixel camera and will hunt for optical counterparts of transient stellar explosions observed by the Meerkat Radio Telescope Array. The Meerkat is a precursor to the Square Kilometer Array. Both the Meerlith and the Meerkat will be scanning the southern skies. The project is a collaboration between six institutions from South Africa, the Netherlands and the UK. Professor Ben Stappers, who is a collaborator from our very own Chaudhary Bank Centre for Astrophysics, says, For us, it was the reason to join this consortium. Flashes of radio emission, known as fast radio bursts, may now be caught in the act by both Meerkat and Meerlith. Hopefully, we can finally determine the origin of these enigmatic flashes. A co-principal investigator of the telescope, Professor Rob Fender from the University of Oxford said, This is the beginning of a new phase of coordinated multivalence research into the most extreme astrophysical events. Thanks for that, Shruti. Now, Emma and Alexander interviews Daniele Micheli about repeating fast radio bursts and their environments. Hi, I'm here with Daniele Michele from the Anton Panikouk Institute and Astron, who has recently published a very exciting paper on the repeating fast radio burst. Um, so, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, so, first of all, uh, do you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and uh, and, and the work that you do? Uh, sure. Well, uh, I'm Italian. I finished my university in Rome and then I moved to the Netherlands three years ago. I started working with Jason Hessels, my supervisor, on uh, pulsars and fast radio transients, and uh, recently started working on fast radio bars that published this uh, paper. Yeah, it's a very interesting paper. Um, so to give our listeners a little bit of context, could you give a an overview of what fast radio bursts are, and then go on to why this fast radio burst that you've been studying is particularly special? Fast radio bursts are mysterious sources uh, the first one was discovered 11 years ago, so they are relatively new discoveries. They are radio flashes from faraway galaxies, and the, uh, for most of them we only detected one single explosion in radio. These 
explosions are very powerful and we don't know what causes this uh, phenomenon. Therefore, we, uh, in the last decade, we try to observe many, many of these sources, trying to understand what can cause these extremely bright uh, flashes. For one of the sources, we detected multiple flashes, and this permitted us to study the, the source with different telescopes and different instruments. We localized precisely the source within a dwarf galaxy located 3 billion light years away. Um, and uh, uh, then we started to study all the properties of these bars with different telescopes. I used Arecibo, which is currently the second largest uh, parabola in the world, which is located in Puerto Rico, US. Uh, we observed the source for the first time uh, at relatively higher frequencies than before. This permitted to study a property known as uh, polarization of the waves. Polarization of the wave, and in particular, the uh, effects that uh, um, uh, caused by the material between us and the source allowed us to study the environment of the source, finding an extreme value of magnetic fields, which uh, could be due to the presence of a supermassive black hole near the source, or maybe to some uh, supernova remnant, which is what remains after the explosions of a very big star. So I've heard the phrase that there are more theories as to what FRBs are and where they have come from. Uh, there are more of those theories than there are actually observed fast radio bursts. Um, so this work of yours, is it going to help constrain some of these theories, some of these models, and potentially pin down what these mysterious bursts are? Yes, exactly. As you said, there's plenty of possible models to explain these uh, these sources. Um, with this study, we, uh, as I said, we focus on the environment, and therefore there aren't many places in the universe that show such an extreme environment, and this pinned down the possible models, and uh, not only this, but could create hints for uh, other models that theoreticians are uh, currently working on. Um, so, so what implications um, does this study of yours have in terms of future work uh, concerning fast radio bursts? What, what's the next step in studying this burst and potentially studying uh, other bursts that will, will happen at some point? Well, we are now in an exciting time because new facilities are coming online, new telescopes, and these uh, have... Um, new characteristics that will permit to discover uh, tens of bursts each month. This means that we will have many, many more sources to study. At the moment, around 30 are known, and we will know uh, the same number uh, every few days. This, for example, uh, one of the um, discussions that is now going on is if there are different classes of fast radio bars, or all of them uh, are created by the same uh, f physical mechanism. Uh, in, the, in the next uh, few months, studying all these new sources, we will be able to answer this question and uh, uh, probably have more uh, 
better idea on where these sources come from. Uh, so this fast radio burst um, is repeating. Does it repeat on any kind of uh, regular uh, regular time scale? Is it periodic? Um, if so, what what does this ti- these time scales tell you about the nature of the burst? The the bursts that we observe from this repeater uh, are usually uh, concentrated in a uh, sm- uh, short amount of time. For example, we can observe twenty bars in an hour, and then nothing for two weeks. Efforts are ongoing to try to detect a periodicity in the burst. Why this is important? This is important because if if we have a periodic signal from another galaxy, we can use it a, as a clock, as a clock where every burst is basically a tick of the clock, and this clock would be placed in an extreme environment in another galaxy and this will uh, allow us to study the properties of the galaxy and of the environment uh, to an exquisite level. The problem is that we couldn't detect a periodicity yet, but uh, uh, we are uh, we are still trying to, to find one and uh, uh, we'll use new techniques in the next future. Oh, brilliant. Um, another question that I have actually um, after reading uh, reading your paper and, and listening to, to your talk just now, um, you said that the within uh, six months you, you saw a 10% variability in, in this rotation measure, the, um, the measure that quantifies uh, how much the angle of polarization has rotated. Um, now, what, what does this variability mean in terms of the, the environment that the fast radio burst has come from? Uh, the variability of this quantity basically tells us that the the magnetic field causing this effect uh, must be uh, local to the source and uh, present in a compact region. Naively, it's difficult to vary a very large area of the galaxy, while um, such a large variability uh, tends to um, to imply that uh, that actually yeah a small region is uh, uh, is intervening causing this rotation measure, and since chance of alignment are very low, we can safely suppose that this uh, area surrounds the source. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry for my bad English. <laughs> no, it's much better than my Italian, so uh, no worries there. Okay, uh, thanks again to uh, Daniele. Uh, very interesting there on uh, the repeating fast radio burst. Thanks for that, Emma. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the other bits and pieces that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And before we started recording, we decided to uh, go from furthest from earth to closest to earth which means i have to go first so i'm going to shuffle some paper so recently astronomers led by takuya hashimoto from the osaka sango university in japan and the uh, national astronomy observatory of japan have found the very faint but very real signal of oxygen in a galaxy 13.28 billion light years from earth they did this using the ALMA telescope, and it was found in a galaxy with the lovely name of Mach 1149-JD1. So this is the most distant uh, oxygen seen in the uh, in the universe to date, and it was formed when the um, universe was around 10% of its current age. And this is kind of cool, one, because it, it's pushing back um, 
the furthest observed oxygen we've ever seen in the universe, which lets us know that stars have formed slightly earlier than we thought. So to get this amount of oxygen, you need to have had one uh, generation of stars form to turn the helium and hydrogen uh, of the early universe into oxygen or parts, parts of it into oxygen. And then you need those stars to have died and some secondary generation of stars to have come along to ionize the oxygen so that we can observe it. And so if, if this oxygen that, that is being observed with the ALMA telescope was observed nearby, it'd all be at infrared wavelengths, so it'd be much shorter wavelengths. But because of the expansion of the universe and the, the great distances uh, to this source, this has been redshifted into the millimeter wavelength band that um, ALMA uh, sees. So that's uh, that's pretty good. And ALMA has a really good record of doing this. So the, it's currently sort of pushing back how far back oxygen has been detected in the universe. So in 2016, there was an observation at 13.1 billion uh, light years away. Um, and then the year after, 13.2. And then this has gone up by nearly a, a tenth of a billion years to 13.28. So we're really sort of pushing back how far oxygen was observed and that has implications for how early stars were forming. So going out a little bit further into space, um, there's some groundbreaking news coming out of research at the University of Toronto where a team of astronomers has performed some of the most detailed observations of a binary stellar system um, in the history of astronomy. What they've actually been able to see is the two radio emitting regions on the surface of a neutron star that are 20 kilometers apart. So to kind of put that into context, how detailed that is, the kind of resolution we're talking about here, it's the same as using a telescope here on Earth to see a flea on the surface of the moon. So this is really incredible. And to make this happen, we actually did need a bit of celestial magic in a way. We needed literally these two stars to align. So this binary system consists of a dead star, the neutron star, which is also a pulsar. So it's emitting two thin beams of light from these um, these regions 20 kilometers apart, so sort of on its poles. And the other star is a failed star called the brown dwarf. So these are two interesting stars, and they orbit each other. And what this brown dwarf also has is a sort of a tail of gas that it's trailing behind it. And so when you look at the pulsar, the gas from the brown dwarf companion actually acts as a magnifying glass. And looking through that gas, we were able to then see separately the two uh, radio emitting regions um, that we wouldn't have seen otherwise if we didn't have this this kind of configuration and this kind of gas. Um, so it's a really... Um, we're very lucky to be able to see this and get this really nice chance alignment. But what we get from this is this really detailed scientific observation, and we can learn much more about what's happening in these kind of exotic neutron star brown dwarf binaries. And another little fun fact about this kind of system where you have a neutron star or pulsar that's giving off intense radiation and a much smaller star or lighter star nearby is that the intense radiation from the neutron star actually starts to melt away its companion stars. Its companion stars are trying to help it and give it matter and help it grow, but it's actually being destroyed in the process. And so we call these systems black widow systems, just like you have a black widow spider that eats its mate after it's helped it to procreate. It gobbles the mate up. So, um, yeah, so there's spiders in space. 
space spiders are real. They're yeah. out there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they're teaching us more about the universe. I had noticed that the office where the guys that work with Black Widows and, and Redback systems has the, the little moniker, the spider's web on there, yep. on their door now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we're at the Jaldo Bank Center for Astrophysics. We have a very active, quite large group of people working on these space spiders. So yeah, so as Adam said, there are the Black Widows. And then there's also a different, a slightly different configuration called Redbacks, which is a different kind of spider that I think you find in Australia. And, um, yeah, and they also consist of a, a neutron star blasting a slightly different kind of companion. I think that's where the, the difference comes in. So, yeah, so the spiders web group here doing fantastic work. And we soon in the future, hopeful, uh, hopefully we'll look forward to hearing some of their odds and ends mm-hmm. on the show. Yep. The more you know. <laughs> Coming back down to Earth, I'm going to talk about the Prime Minister's visit to the Jodrell Bank Observatory. So last week on May the 21st, Theresa May visited Jodrell Bank Observatory to make an announcement about the new industrial strategy. During her visit, uh, she walked around the site, saw the Discovery Center as it currently is, came into the control room for the Lovell Telescope in Emerlin, and chatted to the director and other members of the observatory. And I was lucky enough, along with Javier Moldon and Sally Cooper, to represent early career researchers uh, from the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics during her visit. There were also a few other researchers uh, from across the University of Manchester from various fields, such as climate scientists and somebody working in robotics and another person working in health. And we were all there to introduce ourselves and and talk a little bit about what we worked on to exhibit the research going on at the University of Manchester and at Jodrell Bank. So she made an announcement uh, while she was at the observatory about all of the new funding that will go into science and technology and sort of the new industrial strategy, the new mission for science and technology into the future. And I believe the UK will be increasing uh, the spending on science and technology from 1.6 to about 2.4% uh, GDP. So that's very encouraging. Also during this visit, it was announced that the Discovery Centre at Jodrell Bank is to receive a total of £16 million for the new First Light at Jodrell Bank project, which will create a stunning new gallery building to promote and celebrate Jodrell Bank's world-leading place in the history of astronomy. So £12 million of the total is thanks to uh, national lottery players, uh, with a further £4 million coming from the government. And the project aims to preserve and protect the heritage of the site for future generations, with new facilities such as a gorgeous new exhibition and engagement space, a planetarium, an education hub, and a new cafe. And the project will be delivered over the next three years. And the uh, concept, the architect's concept images look really cool, so it's going to be awesome when it it gets... I'm really excited (laughs) about it. Yeah, looking forward to that. And for those of you who can't make it out to the Discovery Centre, you can always just stick your head out the window and look up and see what's up in the sky. And up next, we have Ian Morrison discussing, yeah, exactly what this month's night sky will look like. The night sky for June 2018. Well, to be frank, we don't have very much dark sky, do we, this month? You've either got to stay up very late or get up very, very early in the morning. But nevertheless, there are some nice things to see, as I hope I'll be able to show you. Well... As darkness falls, that rather nice constellation of Leo with its bright star Regulus is setting towards the west. And just to the west of Denebola, the star right at the 
back of Leo, his tail, I suppose, is that lovely region, the realm of the galaxies. I was at a dark site in Anglesey at the weekend, and I was able to image Virgo A, M87, and also what's called Macarian's chain, which is quite a nice thing to look for if you have a reasonably large telescope. The bright star you'll see in the south is Arcturus in Bootes. Just to the left of that, a little circlet is called Corona Borealis. And then we have a nice region I'll come back to, including the constellation of Hercules. And then we know it's summer, because rising in the east is what is called the Summer Triangle. The bright star Altair in Aquila the Eagle. Up to its right, we have Vega in the small constellation of Lyra. And up to its left is Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. And those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. There is a dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift that lies along in this region. If you, with binoculars, start at Altair and work your way about a third of the way to Vega, you come across the rift and you might well see a little asterism there. It's called Brocky's Cluster, but often known as the Coat Hanger, because it looks a little bit like an upside-down coat hanger. Up and a bit to the west is the constellation Ursa Major, which includes the plough, known by the Americans as the Big Dipper. And that was because it was a sort of a ladle that was used to ladle out the soup to the farm workers as they came in for lunch. So although there aren't many hours of darkness, there are some nice constellations to see. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter. Jupiter reached opposition on May the 8th. So it'll be visible during the evening after darkness has fallen. That's quite late, of course. It shines at magnitude minus 2.5, falling to minus 2.3 during the month. It has a disk some 44 arc seconds across, again dropping slightly to 41.5. Jupiter's equatorial bands, and sometimes the great red spot, can be visible on its disk, along with up to four of the Galilean moons. For that, of course, you'll need a small telescope. Sadly, Moving slowly westwards in Libra during the month, Jupiter is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of around 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. As a result, atmospheric dispersion will hinder our view. And it might be worth considering the purchase of what's called the ZWO Atmospheric Dispersion Corrector, which can counteract its effects. Now Saturn. Saturn comes into opposition on the 27th of June, so it will be visible during all the few hours of darkness. Its disk has an angular size of just over 18 arc seconds, and its brightness increases slightly from plus 0.2 to plus 0.0 magnitudes as the month progresses. The rings were at their widest some months ago, but still at 25.7 degrees to the line of sight, well open and spanning about two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. Lying in Sagittarius close to the topmost star of the teapot, it will only reach an elevation of just over 15 degrees above the horizon as it crosses the meridian. And again, atmospheric dispersion 
will hinder our view, as well, of course, as the thickness of the atmosphere we're looking through. Now Mercury. Mercury passes behind the Sun, that's called superior conjunction, on the 5th stroke 6th of June, but will become visible at around magnitude minus 0.7, low in the west after sunset by mid-month. By the end of its month, its magnitude will have dropped to minus 0.2, but it will then set about one and a half hours after the Sun and have an angular diameter of 6.5 arc seconds. Its greatest elongation west of the Sun is actually next month on the 12th of July. Mars lies in Capricornus. It begins its retrograde motion westwards on the 28th of June as it moves towards its closest approach to Earth since 2003 in about two months' time. It rises around midnight BST at the start of the month and around 10.30pm by month's end. Its magnitude increases somewhat from minus 1.2 to minus 2.1 and has an angular size of 15.3 arc seconds. That was the largest it's ever got at the last apparition, which increases to 20.7 arc seconds by the end of the month. So, with a small telescope, it'll be possible to spot details such as Certis Major on its salmon pink surface. Again, it's down towards the bottom part of the ecliptic. It will only reach an elevation of 14 degrees before dawn. So again, the atmosphere will hinder our view. Well, you can't have missed, I think, Venus in the last few weeks. It's now dominating the western sky after sunset, shining brightly at magnitude minus 3.9. Has an angular size of 13 arc seconds, which gradually increases to 15 arc seconds as the month progresses. It rises a little higher in the sky during June, initially setting about two and a half hours after the sun, a little less by month's end, as its elevation after sunset remains at around 20 degrees. Venus starts the month in Gemini, not far below and to the left of Pollux, but passes into Cancer on the 11th, when on the 19th and 20th it lies close to M44, the beehive cluster. Well, finally, the highlights of the month. June is a great month to view Jupiter. It came into opposition on May the 8th and will be visible in the south in the late evening. As I said earlier, it's moving down the ecliptic and now lies in Libra and will only reach an elevation of 20 degrees as it crosses the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometres across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate it's now reducing in size by about 580 miles per year. Will it eventually disappear? Now, one nice thing, some years ago, one could barely see the great red spot. It just looked like a depression without much colour. But I've imaged it recently, and the red spot is now very prominent and a lovely orange-red, sort of brick-red colour. Um, if you go into my Astronomy Digest, either just put in Astronomy Digest into Google 
or get to it from the Night Sky page, which I'll mention later, then I have an article about the imaging I've done this last month in May. And although the images aren't great, they're not going to be when Jupiter is so low. Nevertheless, it does show up the red spot very well. June's a nice month to find the globular cluster in Hercules and spot what's called a double-double in Lyra. They're two nice objects to spot with binoculars in the eastern sky well after dark this month, which means staying up to around midnight. Two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation Hercules is M13, the best globular cluster in the northern sky. It looked like a little fuzzy blob in binoculars. Moving eastwards towards Lyra, one will see the bright star Vega. And just to its lower left is a multiple star system called Epsilon Lyrae, often called the Double Double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen. But when observed with a telescope, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star. Hence the name. And another thing that June is a very good time to observe. These are called noctilucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesopheric clouds and are commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude in the UK. They are the highest clouds in the atmosphere at heights of around 80 kilometres or 50 miles. Normally they're too faint to be seen, but they are visible in June when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. They're not fully understood and appear to be increasing in frequency, brightness and extent. And some think that might be due to climate change. So, on a clear dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look to the north and you might just spot them. They do look rather lovely, actually. So, just some really conjunctions between the planets and the moon. On June the 1st, at around 2am, Saturn is close to a waning gibbous moon. Actually, quite a nice photo opportunity. And then on June the 3rd, at around 2.30am, Mars will be seen close to a waning gibbous moon. Bit easier to spot. On June the 8th, after sunset, Venus can be seen to the lower left of Pollux in Gemini. And on the 16th after sunset, it'll be visible with a very thin crescent moon. You will probably need to use binoculars or a telescope to spot the moon. So after sunset, if it's clear, you have a chance to see that. And you may be able to see, as we actually saw um, in the basically the crescent of the moon a few days ago, what's called Earthshine, which is the darker part the unilluminated by the sun part of the moon, which is illuminated by light reflected from clouds in the Earth's atmosphere. It's called Earthshine, and that's a rather lovely thing to see. On June the 28th, 2.30 a.m., again, you've got to stay up very late or get up very early, you will see Saturn down to the lower left of the full moon. Again, that would actually make quite a nice photo opportunity. They are quite close. I usually say something about the moon, and on January the 22nd stroke 23rd, there are two good nights to observe the two great lunar craters 
Tycho and Copernicus, because on those nights the Terminator is quite close. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old, and is thought to have been formed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave rise to the asteroid Baptistina. And it is thought that another asteroid originating from the same breakup may well have caused the Chicxulub crater, that's off the coast of Mexico, some 65 million years ago. Tycho has a diameter of 85 kilometres and is nearly 5 kilometres deep. And its floor is very rough with boulders. In fact, when I first came to Jodrell Bank, I studied the lunar surface by radar and it sticks out like a sore thumb. At full moon, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. In contrast, Copernicus is about 800 million years old and lies in the eastern part of Oceanus Procolarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's 93 kilometres wide and nearly 4 kilometres deep and is a classic terrace crater. And both can be seen with binoculars. So, although the nights are not long, I do hope you have a chance to look at the night sky. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Gabby Perez with the night sky where you are. Kia ora. Gabriela Perez here from Space Place at the Carter Observatory in Wellington. Um, it's certainly getting colder down here in the Southern Hemisphere as we approach the winter months. But the good news is that we'll have plenty of opportunities to look at our southern skies with all these extra hours of nighttime. June is also an incredible month for planet viewing. So mid-month brings on the winter solstice on the 21st of June, bringing on the longest night and the shortest day. This will also mean the sun will be at its lowest elevation for the year. The beginning of the month will see the last of our summer constellations very low in the western sky. Um, along with Sirius, the brightest true star, which will twinkle in the early evening if it's found quite close to the horizon. This twinkling occurs as the star's light will be dispersed if the atmosphere is denser nearing the horizon, and we'll see a bit of the separation of colour. Now, rising in the east are some of our winter constellations, such as Scorpius and Sagittarius. We don't have scorpions here in New Zealand, so Scorpius is seen as the fishhook of Maui with its bloody bait, the red star Antares. So um, Maui was responsible for fishing out the North Island here in New Zealand, and his fish hook was used to do so. He used so much force that it was flung into the skies where it is forever um, commemorating this event as this constellation, which the rest of the world knows as Scorpius. So following Scorpius is Sagittarius, and the zone between them is Sagittarius A, and this marks the heart of our Milky Way. Winter in the Southern Hemisphere is a really great time to see this bulge in our Milky Way. And it is in the zone that astronomers believe to be a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, helping it hold it together. The first planet that will be visible in the sky before the sun has fully set is our evening star, Venus. It will be visible in the north west in the constellation of Gemini, and it will set about an hour before the sun does. The next bright planet will be Jupiter in the east, 
in the constellation of Libra and will remain in our skies until dawn. At about 9pm at the beginning of the month, we will see the rise in the southeast of the ringed planet Saturn. Um, obviously, it will rise earlier and earlier each day. The end of the month, we'll see it rising at about 7pm. And this will be found in the constellation of Sagittarius. Um, I hope everyone keeps warm and enjoys our beautiful southern skies and enjoys these extra hours of night to understand more about what's going on up above. Thanks for that, Gabby. And now on to the feedback. So we've had an email from Lindsay saying, very pleased to see you back online. Always appreciate your bi-monthly episodes and look forward to the next one. Best wishes. Thanks, Lindsay. Yep, thank you. Thank and you. Thanks to the people on Facebook that were always uh, also uh, welcoming us back after our uh, server downtime the other week. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, of course, you can always send us post, the traditional snail mail way, and the address is on the website. Thanks to Emma Alexander for the interview. The editors were Mark Kennedy, Alex Clark, Jake Morgan, and Tom Scragg. The producer was Naomi Asabre Frimpong. And until next time, John on. John on.